great to see you. I um, I've been really uh, challenged by this this series in 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 what it is to be fully alive. I I think that so often we the reference point for how the normal Christian life and what it is to follow Jesus is often demarked by what's happening around us in the life of a church or fellow believers or things that are happening through the infrastructure of church life. And and yet, I think we've come to discover, and, and we articulate this a little bit in, in who we say we are as a church. We say we're a church who is absolutely designed to encounter God, to be empowered into our identity, but then to engage our city. And I think we as a church, we do, we do really well in those spaces of encountering God. We prioritize times in His presence. We prioritize what it is to be formed and marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit and to know that our identity is marked by the love of the Father. We, we love that reality. And I think we're, we're growing stronger in this understanding that the normal Christian life is a journey of maturity, that we're, we're, we're not we're stepping more into the fullness of who Jesus is and what he has for us and his likeness. And there is that being empowered into our full identity. But I think often as Christians, we can stop there. There's enough to be going at. There's enough momentum, activity. And, and again, a lot of that can be built around the activity of the church for us to kind of hover there for a while. And actually, we never really step into the full purpose and fully alive, which is the, the fact that an encounter with God is not simply for ourselves. It's so that we can become an encounter to the world around us. That actually, the, the maturity journey of becoming more like Jesus isn't just so that we look like better Christians. It's so that we reflect with maturity who the Father is to the world that desperately needs to know Him. Everything that we do actually is pointed to that final E, we have three E's, encounter God, empower people, and engage the city. All of what we do in the life of our community and as a life of individuals as followers of Jesus is built around the fact that it, it ends with this pinnacle of engaging our city. And I feel like as a church, we're, we're learning more how to be effective in that space. We're learning more how the, the, the reality of the presence of God in me is actually the presence of God for those around me. That this maturity journey that we're on is not simply just about becoming a better Christian, but is actually demonstrating through our maturity who the Father is to a world that needs to know Him. And that's why I'm loving this series. And I love where we've gone already, and, and I want us to actually take us back to really focus in on the cultural mandate this morning. You know, one of the things that uh, Sarah, if you haven't caught the first two messages that Sarah brought, she really zeroed in on the, on the distinction between the original calling, which we'll look at this morning in the cultural mandate that we find in Genesis. And then the, then the second week, looking at this, this new calling, which is the, the, um, that we have as, as followers of Jesus, which is to make disciples of all nations, the Great Commission. And I've been pondering this whole, uh, this whole um, tension between, well, how do we live both of those things out? How do we live the beauty of, of the cultural mandate where actually the whole of my life is designed and defined by the Father to have influence on the world around me? And yet to also step into the very specific nature of the calling to actually bring people into fresh and brand new relationship with Jesus, to see my life be a disciple-making life, that others would come to know Jesus through me. How do I hold those two things together? And um, I feel like that's a, that's, a, that's a journey worth going on, discovering what those two things look like, how they're expressed in our life. And I, I do want to zero back in this morning on the cultural mandate. And I want to look at three very specific things that I feel like um, are assumptions that we make 
about our lives and the Christian faith and what our walk with Jesus is like, I think as, I've, as I'm growing up with Jesus, I'm discovering that, and having been around the church a long time, the whole of my life, I realized actually there's a lot of assumptions that I make, and some of those assumptions are beautiful, and they are nurturing what it is to really follow and be with Jesus and be like Jesus, and I love those assumptions, but every once in a while, I'll have a conversation with somebody, and I'm like, oh, I've made a certain assumption about what it is to really follow Jesus in this area, and what you're saying is challenging that assumption, and I think I'm being challenged in a good way. And so I want to provoke us this morning with, with three assumptions. And some of these things will be like, no, I've got this down. I, I, I understand this. And, and, but for others, it would be like, oh, no, I, I've made certain assumptions. There's certain ways that I think about that specific thing that actually is undermining or constraining me really coming into the fullness of what it is to follow Jesus and to display him to the world around us. And the first assumption that I want to dive into is looking at Ultimately, the, the assumption that because I'm not defined by what I do, which we agree with, I'm not simply defined by what I do, then actually I'm defined by who I am, who Jesus says I am, then actually what I do, the action of my life, really doesn't matter. And, and it, this, this assumption really drills in and around a question, well, which one's more important, intimacy with God or action? And I think some of us get caught in the mix, mix of that. I want to dive into that. The second assumption I want to look at is, is the assumption that maybe we have that maybe there are parts of our lives that are more significant or more important to God because they are our spiritual side. They are um, the, the aspects of our lives that we might deem more spiritual. And the challenge that, that ultimately there are maybe parts of our lives that God's not that interested in, the physical parts of our life, the mundane, day-to-day parts of our life, and, and we kind of put those over to one side and they, we devalue them, we don't think they have any significance. And, it, and it's often referred to as the sacred or spiritual secular divide. And thinking that in some way the, the assumption is that God's super interested in the spiritual part of my life, but he's not that interested in the kind of secular, mundane, day-to-day. That bit's just like, that's for me to get on with. God's not really interested. And we elevate this consciousness of the spiritual part of us. And we create a, a, a delineating line between two parts of our lives. And the third assumption that I want to look at um, this morning is actually an assumption that I think that we that we don't help ourselves with here in this church. And that is the assumption that, that the workplace is the primary vehicle for my calling. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I'll talk about this later, but we do our church, my story, most weeks, and we tell the story of where we show up as a church family outside the walls of this building. And so for many of us, we have this kind of first point of call, which is, well, of course, that's my workplace. That's where I work. That's, that's what I do. That's, that's the kind of primary vehicle for my calling. But actually, I want to hold in front of us this morning a bit of a challenge and for myself and for us as a community to say, let's just acknowledge that actually the beauty of the calling, the vocation that's on each one of our lives might not necessarily be and come through the aspect of the work that I have. And I want to hold some questions in front of us to help us on that journey. But I want to very quickly just recap this, this cultural mandate that we find in Genesis and, um, you know, the cultural mandate is for us to be fruitful and to multiply, to subdue the earth, to bring life and to bring flourishing. 
And the second part of what Sarah brought was the Great Commission, how to make disciples. And again, like I said, I struggled over the last few weeks as I've been wrestling with God because as I started to realize, actually, that there are, there are these unique, unique designs around the original calling that we find here in Genesis 1 to, to bring flourishing to the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth. In the midst of that, there is also the very new and defined uh, calling that we find uh, in Matthew 28, which is our call to go and make disciples. And I was thinking about it like this as I was pondering, like, how do I, how do we hold these things together? I remember when I was a kid, I was about 13 years old, and, and my parents and family, we took a long road trip from Colorado, which is in the middle of America, to LA. And it was kind of like this. It, it was kind of like, um, often I think that that we focus in on the Great Commission as this is the pinnacle of the Christian life calling, that it is to go and make disciples, to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus. And it's kind of like that is our, that's our destination. That's kind of like me saying I, I've got a, I, uh, my destination, the, the crosshairs of where we're going to, what we're aiming at is this road trip and it's L.A. But actually, I'd be foolish to think that if, if throughout the whole of the journey from Colorado to L.A., that if I just sat in the car going, well, the only reason I'm sat in the car is we've just got to get to L.A. We've just got to get to L.A. That's the crosshairs. That's what we're doing. That's the, that's the main pinnacle point of everything we're doing. I would miss out on the beauty of the Rocky Mountains, miss out on all of the In-N-Out burgers we could have eaten along the way, all of the great and beautiful things I could have experienced on an amazing three-day road trip. And so I, I've come to realize that actually in the midst of understanding there is a new and very uh, defining um, call that God places on our lives to go and make disciples, it's set in the context of his original call on us, which is this, this cultural mandate. And if we think that in some way that the new call is more important um, in our life, then then we'll always actually just walk through life thinking that, that our interactions with people are just simply just a transactional way in which to bring people to Jesus. And actually, the way that we'll process people will be on the basis of, I need to give you an opportunity to accept and reject Jesus. That It will become very transactional. If that's the primary way that we look at our life, is purely through this new calling of, of, the, of the Great Commission. But actually, if we can hold the fact that through the original uh, calling that we have that, that God gives to humanity, which is to go and flourish and create and build culture, that actually along the journey of seeing people come to know Jesus, there's a great expansive conversation that we have with God, which is, why am I on the planet and what are you calling me to do? But Genesis 1, 28 gives us this, this cultural mandate and it says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on earth. So God introduces this concept of, of subduing. Now, in the, he, the Hebrew word there, which is kabash, to subdue, has actually two very different meanings. The first meaning could be to subdue in, in by way of exploiting, to abuse or to enslave. But actually, the, the counterpoint to that is that actually to, to subdue, and this is what God was getting at when he was marking out the territory of what our lives were to look like, is that actually we were to be ones to subdue in that we were to tame something that was wild and bring order out of chaos and bring harmony out of discord. Isn't that beautiful to think that we could walk through life and that in some way that, that my life would come into contact with things that are wild and out of control and I would build, bring harmony and order 
That would be amazing to think that, that my life would have such an effect on the, the, the slightly wild and untamed and broken parts of the world that surrounds me and circles me. That my life has that much influence and that much leadership and that much equity of influence that I could bring about change to the world around me. That's what it is to subdue. And I want to lean back into this, this very original calling, this cultural mandate. Because I think that as we journey through life and as we journey maybe even through seasons of focus in the church, that we pick up these assumptions that, that potentially have the ability to undermine what it is for us to live fully alive to that original call. But as we do that, I want to remind you that I found this, this beautiful quote from Nancy Piercy who wrote The Total Truth, and, it's, and, it, and it helps frame and define ultimately what, what it is, the work, the job, the assignment, the calling of what it is for each one of us to own that original call, the cultural mandate. It says this, the first phrase, to be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, and laws. The second, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us our original purpose was to create cultures and build civilizations. And so there's a very real task at hand when we read this original call. We can't actually separate ourselves from this beautiful, transformational building a reality of the culture around us. We can't separate ourselves from that reality of something that is being created around us. It's for us to take our place, to get involved. It's, us, it's for us to get involved, and it's our job to do. And so again, for, for many of us to, to detach ourselves from that and say, well, well, God will do all that, I'll just be along for the ride, misses out on the fact that actually there's an assignment, there's a calling on your life to create culture, to be a part of this cultural mandate. And again, that wasn't set in motion at creation for us to sit back and go, well, that'll just happen around us. I think if we learn anything from, from the cultural narrative of, of what's going on at the moment, the, the reality is, is that if the world just continues to build its culture and we have nothing to say to it, we'll step back and we would be devoiding ourselves of the reality that actually we get to take a part in playing, in building the culture. That we get, to, we get to shape where our city goes. We get to shape where our workplace, our streets, our families. We get to be involved in shaping the future and destiny of what the culture around us looks like. So I want to hit on this first assumption, and this first assumption is built around the, 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 those two words. Is it intimacy or is it action? I spend a lot of time um, with church leaders in our city, and, and it's fascinating to watch the lens or, or hear and be observant of the different lenses that church leaders uh, have for, for the community that they're leading and building. And, and, and it's fascinating, especially when you, when you come across um, leaders who have a primary gifting, it's really interesting when you come across evangelists who lead churches. There's, we have some brilliant evangelists leading churches in this city. But what's very interesting is what they elevate in their sense of importance or prioritizing is task. It's, it's the action. It's the, listen, there are people going to hell, and we need to be about telling them about Jesus. 
And it's very orientated around action is a priority. We have to get going. We need to mobilize. The church needs to be programmed and, and fixed and pointed towards the world around us. And we need to get going and building, and I need you all to be involved. And it's this high priority on action. Now, I also have conversations with um, highly pastoral leaders who elevate and love and value the space that gets created around the presence of God for healing and restoration and, 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 and understanding around the Father heart of God and what it is to be defined by the love of the Father and that, that we're not in any way, we're not identified or we're not valued by what we do, but who we are and who the Father says we are. And listen, I love both of those positions. But quite often, when you look at then how that works out in a, in a church vision, the reality is, is for those churches that are building primarily around a, a higher value for intimacy with God, there's often very little action. And often then with those that are building cultures around action, and this is what we are responsible for, there's a highly motivated but, but very... Um, obligated culture of we need to just be about the mission of Jesus. And listen, I actually don't think that in building a church it's about finding a happy medium. I actually don't think it's about finding a good rhythm of having some intimacy with God and then some action. It's not like splitting the church down the middle and going, evangelists all get over here and you'll whinge when we're in worship and you lot who just love the presence of God, you'll love it and can we have extended times of worship. It's not about creating divisions in the church, but it's about saying, how do we own these values together? And ultimately, I believe, how do we create order? Because actually, I, what I've come to discover is that the part of this cultural mandate is that it doesn't, that we absolutely need to know who we are. And there's an interconnectedness between intimacy with God and what it is to, to, to have action, the normal Christian life action. There's an interconnectedness that actually, it starts with intimacy with God. But to truly know and experience the love of the Father absolutely propels us to become more like him and be about what he's about and so to have a value for intimacy actually will always lead us to be defining our action through the lens of the identity that we get as sons and daughters you know and all the while that we hold those two things as mutually exclusive and not connected we're constantly going to be fighting the battle of which one's more important do i need to spend more time in worship or do i need to spend more time activating evangelism and we'll be conflicted because we're trying to prioritize when when actually through the interconnectedness of of my identity through christ as as god's son and daughter that my identity through christ as his son and daughter I discover the purpose of that identity, and it gives me a whole world, a whole conversation around how I show up and what I do, and they're connected. And I find both parts of my life equally valuable, and I recognize that one thing, my doing, comes out of the other thing, my being. We don't hold them separately, but we understand they fit beautifully together, and that there is order in them. Paul expressed this brilliantly in Ephesians 2. He says this. I'll read from the Phillips translation. And he, he's able to articulate the, the high value of the transformational nature of the gospel through Jesus and how ultimately that has nothing to do with what I do, but has everything to do with what he did. But then he goes on to mark what that actually means. He says this, But even though we were dead in our sins, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, 
he has for us, gave us life together with Christ. It is, remember, by grace and not by achievement that you were saved and has lifted us right out of the old life to take our place with him in Christ in the heavens. Thus he shows us for all time the tremendous generosity of the grace and kindness he's expressed towards us in Christ Jesus. It was nothing you could do or did achieve. It was God's gift to you. No one can pride, so, uh, no one can pride himself upon earning the love of God. The fact is that what, what, what we were owed to that, what we owe to the hand of God upon us, we are born afresh in Christ. So there he goes, he talks all about what it is to be marked by the generous grace of God. And then he says this, I'm born to do those good deeds which God planned for us to do. We're entirely marked by the love of God, expressed in the, the moment where we said yes to Jesus. And now that begins to springboard us into a life that is defined by good works, a life that looks like the goodness that we've received. And I love what Emma talked about last week, and she was able to really help us understand that that, that equation of my self-worth is not defined by my performance or what other people say about me. Like we know that, we need to assimilate that into our thinking, that, that my self-worth is entirely not defined by my performance, what I do and what people say about me. But at the same time, we can't swing the pendulum right over the other side and say, well, if that's the case, then what I do has no, has no value whatsoever. Because actually, you can't get away from the scriptures and it's implicit and uh, it's challenged that, that the normal Christian life actually looks like something. There are things for us to get involved in. And so I think for, for us, the, some of this tension or assumption is, is around maybe the way that we think and maybe the way we prioritize. And I would really encourage you to, to bring those two beautiful aspects of the normal Christian life that, that we are entirely um, able to, to um, fully immerse ourselves in those beautiful encounters with God, that, it, that he is the one that wants to come and speak to us. He wants to presence himself with us. He wants to come and define who you are as you spend time with him. That beautiful aspect of the intimacy that we get with God. But it is not devoid of the action and the activity of what's, what flows from that place. And we have to bring those two things together. The intimacy and action are absolutely congruent in the normal Christian life. The second thing I want to just raise as a, as a little thought and maybe assumption is that whole thing around the sacred and the secular divide. This assumption that God is in some way interested about one part of my life in, in a more, um, more focused way than perhaps other parts of my life. That actually the more secular, my job, my, what, I spend, you know, what I watch on TV, my, the physical part of my life, he's not that interested. He's more interested in the spiritual part of my life. What's really interesting is that when you fully read the Bible and you, and you understand the, uh, the culture that even Jesus was speaking into, as a, uh, the, the, a first century Jew didn't have a Greek mindset, that ultimately, interestingly, the, the Hebrew, the first three quarters of the Bible, there's no mention of a spiritual life. It's just not mentioned. There isn't a Hebrew word for spiritual First three quarters, the Bible just talks about life. In fact, you read Leviticus and there's a whole raft, there's a whole book there just talking about the intricacies and of the physical nature of life and eating and what happens during your week. 
in minute detail. God's really interested in all of that. It's actually only when you get into the New Testament and really Paul's the only one that, that talks about what it is to have a spiritual life. And he actually is referencing that more in terms of what it is to, um, to be animated by the Holy Spirit. But actually, I think we carve up our lives in a very Greek way. And the difference, if you want to in a practical way, that Jesus was far more like a milkshake than the Greek way of thinking, which is more like a fruit salad. Let me tell you what it means. In a fruit salad, all of the aspects of the fruit are all there, but they're all separate, and none of them are combined, and none of them interplay together, and, and it's a fruit salad. They're all separate and unique. But actually, in the Hebrew way of thinking, actually, we're a milkshake. Everything's blended together. There is no separation between this, the spiritual part of my life, the, the God landscape of my life, and the practical the secular, there's no, there's no separation between those things. It's interesting, even in, in Exodus 31, there's this description of, of, of two craftsmen who are filled by the Holy Spirit in order that they would go and create to do their craft. This is a beautiful picture of the fact that actually the, the, the whole of our life, even the perhaps mundane of, of work, might be inspired and, and, and actually empowered by the Spirit. And yet for some of us, we would even in our minds mark out, you know, Sunday feels like more of a spiritual day. We'll come to church, we'll worship. But actually Monday through Friday, I've got some practical things to do. And, and that space, our practical, pragmatic, unspiritual space becomes less important. I think all the while we do that, we, we're not able to fully step into being fully alive. We're not able to fully step into this cultural mandate because effectively we say there's a whole landscape of my life that God's really not interested in. It's not really of value to him and therefore we devalue it and we don't see the incredible purpose. And, and the reality is you can't look at the cultural mandate and say, how do I take my place in it? If actually you're going to carve out a huge part of your life in which the cultural mandate is to take place and say, actually, God doesn't love that. God doesn't value that. That's not really that important. And so actually, this, this assumption that we make that part of our lives are important and part of our lives are not will constantly constrain us from what it is to bring life and flourishing to the world around us. It's all worship. Paul, again, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Like Paul boiled it down to the simplicity of my basic human function, eating, eating food. And he said, there is something in that that glorifies God. So if we can elevate the basic function of eating, if Paul can say, look, listen, this is the spiritual part of your life. What are you eating today? What's on the menu? If we can actually consider that actually everything from, from that point is marked out by our spiritual adventure with God, then actually the whole, a whole part of our life begins to open up in terms of what does God want to do when he's present in my eating, in my day, in my conversations, in my work, with my neighbors? What, what does it look like for God to be present and be creating with me in that space? In the time of the Reformation, a couple of hundred years ago, um, the Reformers coined this phrase, priesthood of all believers. And it's, ironically, it's not something that they came up with. They just stole it from 1 Peter 2 verse 9, where he says, but you are all chosen people, a royal priesthood. And, but the Reformers began to kick against this culture, which was that the spiritual part was for the church work. It was for the priests. 
And the reformers said, no, 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 when you look at the cultural mandate, when you look at what it is to be truly a follower of Jesus and the Bible to come alive in the life of every follower, then actually we're all priests. Listen, you can be a doctor, you're still a priest. You can be a dentist, you're still a priest. You can be a teacher, you're still a priest. You can be a parent that stays at home, you're still a priest. The defining significance of how you live your life out as a follower of Jesus is not simply defined by those who have a positional part of being a priest. And it is this beauty that actually the conversation opens up and includes every single one of us. And the amazing thing about that is it removes this aspiration to work for a church. Like how many of you when you were younger just thought, you know, maybe you were a worship leader and you're just like, one day I want to be Matt Redmond-Jones. I just want to be Matt Redmond. I just want to write songs. I just want to work for a church. Anyone? No. Me neither. But here's the thing, like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, fortunately, I don't bump into many people these days that want to work for a church. Maybe it's just like it, there's better careers out there. There are definitely better careers out there. Um, but I'm, I'm inspired by the fact that actually that there's a bigger conversation. There's a, there's a bigger green light for you. that says I, it's not about whether I work for a church or have a ministry or have a website. It's about the fact that I'm living and breathing and following Jesus. I'm a priest. Whatever we do, we bear the image of God. We carry the fullness of this cultural mandate. And that brings us on to the, the final assumption that I think that so often that we make. And I think we've, I have to own the fact that I think we're a little bit responsible in this church here for elevating the conversation about your workplace and I felt really challenged over the last couple of weeks that, listen, you know, for some of you, the workplace is going to be the place where you outwork the cultural mandate to go, to go bring flourishing and bring life. It is that you, are, that you are a teacher and you know that that's the calling of God on your life and that is where you're bringing life. But, but actually, it's not limited to that. I want to go over some questions that will help cultivate um, maybe a, a bit of a clarity around what, it, what, is, what is my calling? Because it, there is work for us to do. There are things to put our hands to. This, this cultural mandate does not happen by accident around us. It happens by design and intentionality. And it happens because we take our place in what God's creating in the world through us. I love what um, Tim Keller says. He talks about the cultural mandate like this. He says, it's about rearranging the raw material of God's creation, creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. Like that's the reality that as human beings walking through life, we have, these, we have the interaction with the world around us, very generally speaking. Now we get to lead and have influence to bring life and bring flourishing to that. And most of the context in which we show up in the world, there's going to be people involved. And so there's this secondary part, which is actually we're in very particular close proximity to other people and we get to bring life and flourishing to them. And so if we're commanded, which is what the, what the cultural mandate is, it's not an optional extra. If we're commanded and we're called to bring flourishing and to cause the world around us to thrive, then part of our journey has to be discover, well, how do I take my place in that story? What is it for me to do? And there is acknowledging that in the midst of that, every single one of us is called. We're all called. There's an interesting word that, um, it's kind of a churchy word, but it, it, it's this word vocation. And it comes from an ancient Italian, uh, sorry, Latin word, which is vocatio, which simply just meant calling. 
And I think we've borrowed it into the church because, again, we often talk about people who are going into ministry as that that's their, that's their vocation. I'm a minister of religion. When I sign forms, that's what I have to put. What's your job? Minister of religion. But actually, this, this definition of what a calling was, was actually, it was broad and it was wide. And so I think part of, of, of us stepping into recognizing our role and the part to play in this great culture mandate is to realize, actually, there is a vocation, there's a calling on my life. Where is that? And where do I show up? And what do I do in that space? And again, thinking about how we so often in that sacred secular divide, we carve up the world, we need to be really careful that we don't just say that the, the, the sacred bit is the things that I do through a church that look like ministry, and then the secular bit, that really doesn't matter. We need to be careful that in the midst of thinking about, about who's called, that we don't say, well, if you work for a church or you're a pastor or you're a missionary, those are the ones that called, and we're all just kind of along cheering you all on and along the way. Now, that's not the way we carve up the world. Every single one of us is called. And finding your calling is actually like finding your voice. It's like we're in a room where there's lots of noise. And what is, where does my voice make sense? Where does my voice bring clarity and meaning and purpose and flourishing to those, to not just myself, but actually to the environment around me and to people around me? What, what is my voice? What is my calling? And here are some questions that I, I think you and I can hold in front of us to start to get more clarity on. What is my calling? And the questions that are to be asked to help shape that intentionality towards what is my call. And the first is this, what am I passionate about? What am I passionate about? What would you do, if, um, what would you do with your life even if you weren't paid to do it? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you most excited? What, what actually causes that inner sense of purpose and passion? Find out what you love. Find out what you love. Find out what makes you come alive. That might be a great starting point for where do I show up and where is God asking me to influence and bring life and bring flourishing? Someone once said, find out what you love and see if you can make a living out of it. And there'll be realists in the room that'll be like, well, no, you have to be pragmatic, get a job need to put food on the table. And I understand all that. And again, this is not for us to create hurdles for us to jump over, but actually part of discovering our passion might well be that, that in, at times that we absolutely find that in the midst of, of our work life. But at times, if that's not necessarily the case and our job is just our job, be asking the question, where is my passion? What makes me come alive and begin to prioritize time into those spaces? Passion may not be what you do for work, but you can prioritize it in such a way that actually, and many of you will know this, that, that actually you, you, there's an acceleration in, in what you can do just through your passion that you maybe don't get through your work, right? So find your passion. Second question to ask yourself is, what are you good at? You know, even when you know, as you're going through life, just pay attention to these are the things that I'm not only passionate about, but the things that I'm really good at. The things that when I turn my hand to them, they seem to work out well. That might well be a place where you're called to bring flourishing and bring, bringing life to the world around you. And again, the counterpoint to that is you might find that there's some things that you try and experiment with and you're not very good at them. 
Don't count those as failures. Just count those as a great opportunity to focus uh, your attention on what you are good at rather than what you're not good at. Ask yourself this question. Where are you the solution? A really good friend of mine, Ben Cooley, runs the second largest um, uh, organization that is dealing with um, anti-human trafficking. It's based right here in Manchester, Hope for Justice. And I've known Ben since he was a student. And I love watching the journey God's had him on because when he was, a, he was in our church when he was part of the Royal Northern College of Music and he was an opera singer, training to be an opera singer. And uh, dude would just sing all the time. That was what he was going to do. And then there was this marked moment when he went to a presentation about, about human trafficking. And God altered his life forever because in that moment, he realized there was a problem in the world. And in that moment, he realized, I'm going to be a solution. Listen, guys, there will be things in your world that you're supposed to bring flourishing to. It might not be as extreme as, as, as dealing with human trafficking. It, it might be just... It, it might be some problem that you've got in your neighborhood. It might be something that, that is, pops up in your workplace that you know constantly comes around as an issue or a problem. Actually, where is that thing that irritates you so much that you're like, I'm just going to do something about it? That might be a little bit of an indicator towards, actually, this is a part of my cultural mandate to bring life and bring change and, and bring flourishing to a situation where there's a problem. So where can your life be a solution? Another question, where can you add beauty? I think we're all acutely aware. You don't have to look very far. You turn on the news. We're acutely aware of the ugly parts of life and community and civilization. Like, we're acutely aware of the ugly parts of society, right? Death, murder, crime, poverty. Like, we're acutely aware of all of those things. And we're all in agreement sitting here. That's not really what we want to give our lives towards, right? But the counterpoint to that is, is not just to sit and observe and say, well, isn't that all ugly? It's to say, where can I add beauty? If all that stuff we see when we watch the news is the ugly part of life, what is it for me to show up in life and bring beauty? To, walk the, to go to your neighbor next door who can't get to the shop and you say, I'm, can I do your weekly shopping for you? Can I bring beauty to your life? You know, that, that person that, that you work with that, that no one really speaks to, and actually maybe even people speak badly about, like, what does it look like for you to take them out to lunch once a week to bring beauty? Think about it for yourself. Like, where in your life, where are the opportunities, the people, the situations, the systems that are around you that, that maybe are looking ugly right now that you can begin to start to bring change to, to bring beauty? Another question, where are the green lights? I think so often, um, and again, we can have this in a prophetic culture. We have a prophetic vision for our life, what, what our purpose and goal and life is, and we have this long-term prophetic picture of our life, and we fail to realize there's a green light right in front of us, and there's something for us to do right now. And often we get into that space where we're like, well, actually, if I'm not doing the, the full vision picture of what my life calling is, if I'm not doing that thing, then everything else is worthless. It's pointless when actually there's a green light in front of us which would actually be the next part of our journey. So what's in front of you? What's the green light? What's the thing in front of you you could put your hands to that you're not doing because you don't think it's big enough? You don't think it's part of your entire calling? You don't think you know, it's not worthy of everything that God's ascribed for you to do? What's just that thing in front of you? I have a friend um, who um, was telling me a story about the fact that 
Um, he knew that God had told him that he was going to have a big portfolio uh, as an estate agent in the States. And he would use this phrase, God's going to drop a skyscraper on my head. And it's like this prophetic thing, God's going to give me a skyscraper one day. And he was like convinced that God had said. And one day my friend said to him, said, well, that's all and well and good, but have you, have you got your estate agent's license yet? And he's like, no, God's going to drop a skyscraper on my head. He's like, well, I don't think he's going to do that because actually, ironically, you wouldn't be able to get a skyscraper if you don't have your estate agent's license. So you should probably do the thing that's in front of you. Another question, where do you find favor? Coming into land here, where do you find favor? I think something just to pay attention to in your life that would help orientate what you give time and energy and resource to is like what's actually just working? Where do I find favor? What are the things that actually God is just breathing on consistently that I need to get, continue to get behind? It's kind of like being out on a, on a lake in a boat with a sail up. It's like actually you go where the wind blows you. You know, you go, you, you, you turn the sail to where that wind's blowing so that actually it adds momentum and adds trajectory to what, what's going on in your life. Another question, what do people encourage you in? You know, for so many of us, we, we actually belittle the things that actually are real strengths in our life that are there for us to bring flourishing and bring life to the world around us. We, we ignore those things because we devalue them. And we have to pay attention to when people encourage and say, you know, I saw you do that, or I think you're really good at this, or, or I, I like what I see there. Pay attention to those things because so often we don't, see them, don't, we don't see those things in ourselves first. So pay attention to those people around you that actually observe those things of beauty in your life where you're bringing life and flourishing. And pay attention to those and give, give weight and give time to those. The final thing is, why is the Spirit stirring? You know, there will just be those seasons in life as we are journeying with Holy Spirit where He just provokes you. He begins to stir something in you. It wouldn't necessarily be something that naturally you would think or you even necessarily have passion about, but He just begins to start stirring you. And being aware and being focused and being attentive to what He's doing in your life is so, so helpful. Because actually he's going to lead us into what it looks like to bring life and flourishing to the world around us. Listen, jobs can come and go, but your calling doesn't. You may find that you're in that sweet spot right now where the thing that you get to give your nine to five to on a Monday through Friday is that very essence of who God created you to be on the planet. And that's beautiful. But for everybody else, begin to ask yourself questions. Don't begin to put your life on hold because you haven't got that perfect job where the synergy of your great calling and assignment and the sense of what you're destined to do is not reflected in what you do in your nine to five. Prioritize, give time, ask yourself questions. And in the midst of all of that, realize that actually there's a, there's a beautiful discussion journey of discovery that we all get to go on with God where we're discovering God what have you put me on the planet for in this original design this original cultural mandate which you give to me as a command how do I show up where am I bringing life where where am I bringing flourishing to the world around me and in that begin to explore with God which you uh, explore with God where most of your life gets to be expressed would you stand I want to pray Father, this morning, I thank you that we get to open our eyes to the big picture. We get to open our eyes again to, to the landscape of what it is to, to take our place in the beautiful kingdom journey, the kingdom transformation of the world around us. 
And it takes us all the way to back to Genesis, what you commanded Adam and Eve to do. And so in the midst of that, God, I pray that you would begin to speak to us. You begin to help us see and understand and then make a commitment to what it looks like for us to show up in the world. Father, I, I ask that, um, yeah, you would deal with any of those uh, constraining thoughts or ideas about who we are, who you are, and how you work. That actually we'd come into line with, with who you say we are and ultimately what you've called us to do. And Father, when we, when we find that space of, of, of assurance of who we are and what you called us to do, I pray that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly to that process. I pray that this church would be marked by, by bringing life to this city, to people, to neighborhoods, to workplaces, to systems, to structures, that, that this church community would be awakened to their purpose and place in bringing life, bringing, bringing flourishing, bringing order, bringing harmony, bringing love to the world around us. And I thank you, Jesus, that in the midst of that, you give us opportunity to walk with people, to bring life to people, to bring them back to you. This beautiful, great commission of making disciples of all nations. But we want to start in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in the city, with our friends. And so we commit again to following you, Jesus, being with you and being like you in it all. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.